Who is uh, Rabbi Eli Kaufer? He is the co-founder and executive director of Mechon Hadar. Please raise your hand if you've ever heard of Mechon Hadar. Okay, so most of the people have not heard of Mechon Hadar, so we're going to have to hear a little bit about that. Uh, Eli has previously worked as a journalist, a banker, and a corporate fraud investigator. He's a graduate of Harvard College. He completed his doctorate in liturgy at the Jewish Theological Seminary, where he's also ordained. A Wexner graduate fellow and Derot fellow, Eli is a, co is, is a co-founder of Kilat Hadar, and has been named multiple times to Newsweek's list of the top 50 rabbis in America. He was selected uh, as an inaugural Avichai Fellow and is the author of Empowered Judaism, What Independent Minyanim Can Teach Us About Building Vibrant Jewish Communities. We have the book here for sale tonight for $10. I urge you all to buy one if there are any left. If not, do you have any more that we can have at our next event? Or is this it? This is it? Okay, well, and Ellie's here, so he'll actually sign the book for you. Um, I, did, I, was, uh, I do look at Mechon Hadar online quite a bit, so if you, if you like to learn more about Mechon Hadar, go to their website, which I would assume is just mechonhadar.org. Um, but this is from the website. Mechon Hadar is an educational institu institution that empowers Jews to create and sustain vibrant, practicing, egalitarian communities of Torah learning, prayer, and service. They have programs there that range from one-off events to one-week special programs where you can go there and learn for a week to if you're really dedicated, a one-year program. And, uh, and Ellie and I were talking about their new Kolel program that they'll be coming into effect. Um, that was just a joke, but maybe. Maybe it'll happen. I don't know. Um, and uh, there's some awesome resources online. They get students from all different denominations who come there who just want to immerse themselves in Judaism uh, from the liturgy to uh, learning about uh, Jewish texts. So with that, I would like to welcome Rabbi Eli Kalanfer to Orange County and to our first event at Temple Bat Yam. Thank you for coming. Thanks so much. I really want to thank Ari um, for all the work he did to bring me here, um, convincing me that I could drive on your roads. I, don't, I live in Manhattan, so I don't own a car. Um, but uh, I feel like the hardest part of my journey is over since I arrived here. Um, it's, it's really uh, an, uh, an honor to be with all of you. I've heard so much about this, um, this community and the learning that you do through this program. It's re really wonderful. When I looked at the list of scholars who have been here, you've been treated to some, some world-class scholars. So um, thank you so much for including me uh, in your learning. We're going to focus a little bit tonight on some of the prayers related to High Holidays and specifically um, what I think is one of the most controversial prayers in, in Jewish life, um, certainly one that uh, pulls at some heartstrings um, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, Unetana Tokef, um, which has the famous words, um, who shall live and who shall die, who by fire, who by water, and we'll get to look at those words um, sort of directly as we study this prayer, which is fascinating. Um, but before we jump into the prayer itself, I want to hear a little bit from you. When you think about the prayers of Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, what, comes, what sort of emotions come to mind when you think about either this prayer or other prayers on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur? What emotions sort of bubble up for you? Yeah, please. Great. Gratitude and an incredible closeness to God, and, and the gratitude specifically for being sort of given the opportunity to renew and start again. 
Okay, other emotions that sort of bubble up for you, yeah. Certainly awe. Awe, do you want to say how you experience awe? Okay, who shall live, who shall die, very awesome, but not in the California way of awesome. Right, yes. <laughs> yes, please. Renewal. Renewal. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, what about, say more? Well, it's a, it's a chance to start over, to ask forgiveness of people and, and be recommitted to Great. To a chance to start over, to ask forgiveness, to, to you know, turn over a new leaf, to, um, to start your life all over again. Yeah, take a couple more. Introspection. What are, you, what are you introspecting on? Well, looking at the mistakes we made last year and hopefully not making them again this year. Okay, great. Sort of some reflection about our own behavior and trying through prayer, and I'm, I'm, I'm using my own words here, through prayer to use that opportunity to um, think about how we might change our behavior going forward. A couple more, yeah? A Community, okay, yeah. When you notice the, that the seats have been redone and the walls have been painted, also notice who's here, right? Yeah? Okay, great. You don't do Rosh Hashanah alone. You could do Rosh Hashanah alone, but um, you know, if, if you're not doing it alone, then you're sort of uh, encountering the community. Yeah? A feeling of being with all the past and future generations. A feeling of being with all the past and future generations. Say a bit more. Say a bit more about the past and the future. Well, How do you feel that? Knowing that you're participating in something that everybody in your family, through all the generations, have done every year as well. Okay, great. You're sort of taking on some practices and experiences that people in the past have had, similar to you, and that you hope will continue on. Okay, last one, yeah. Uh, okay, because I can go the other way also. Please. Ah, okay, I was waiting for somebody to <laughs> raise some question here. Um, okay, Re reward and pun reward. I gotta check minus in handwriting, so if you can't read, don't worry. <laughs> um, reward and punishment, does it really work that way? When we open up the, uh, the book that, you know, sort of looks at our deeds and, and take the measure and see, well, I was, you know, you know 5,083 to 5,082, I made it by one deed. I get to live another life, you know, another year. Is that really how things work? And that's part of what we're going to look at in this poem, because this poem actually has a very clear take on that. Yeah, you want to say last word? I would have said fear and isolation. Fear and isolation, yeah? You have to say a little bit more. It says, who by fire? Who by fire? Are you the one? Ah, okay. Is this a, sort of the singling out? of the who by fire, who shall live and who shall die, um, are you, is it speaking directly to you? Where do you fall on that ledger? Okay? Um, uh, yeah, when you think about, I mean, I think part of the reason this prayer is so powerful and impactful for people, A, it's very easy to understand, <laughs> right? Who shall live and who shall die, there's not a lot of metaphor there, although we're going to see that in the poem itself, there is a fair amount of metaphor. Um, but it also is, is very relatable. I mean, we all know people, as you said, who either got another chance to sort of live again or who didn't make it to this year. I mean, just very moving to hear the sort of health report as part of your introduction and to think about how real these reflective moments are. Really, who will, you know, you can sort of believe or not in any points of religion, but who shall live and who shall die 
is reality. And so this poem forces you to face that reality. It sort of hits you direct, punches you in the stomach in some way. Um, and that's sort of the general approach of what does it mean? Who gets to live and who deserves to die? Is it reward and punishment? Or are there some other theologies that are operating here in the poem? That's what I want to look at with you um, tonight. We see, actually, in this poem itself, there are so many metaphors of how to say life is fragile. The famous book by Milton Steinberg, As a Driven Leaf, right? Ka'aleni Daf comes from this poem as well. The poem itself is quoting the Bible, but, but the, the fragility of life, how, how um, one moment we're here and the next moment we're gone. Does everyone have eyeballs on, on a page if not holding an actual page in their hand? We good? Okay. Now, when we look at this poem, if you, um, we're going to actually spend some time with the poem itself. Um, the poem is on the very back two pages. So if you just turn to the back two pages, if you want, I think that's it. Sharing is good. This, it counts on the good side of the ledger. You want to rack these things up now. Okay, it's Elul. So if you want to take that last page, page seven and eight, just, you can just remove it. Just rip it right off. This is the poem. And we're going to look at the, at the poem. Um, now the poem starts on page 7, Unitana um, Tokef. In the English it, st it starts, and let us acknowledge the power. Okay? This translation, by the way, this translation is done by Joel Hoffman, who's a professor in, in New York uh, at HUC, who um, co-edited a book with his father, Larry Hoffman, entitled Who by Fire, put out by Jewish Lights, and it's about, about 50 essays on Unitana Tokef, and so if, uh, if you're really interested, you can go online and order that book, but the translation is taken from, uh, from Joel Hoffman here. Um, so we're going to look at, at, at the poem itself. Uh, before we dive in and take a look, and you're going to have to do a little bit of work here to just dive into the poem with me, um, but I want you to just direct your attention to the second page. Flip over the page to page eight, the top of the page. Um, Tell me if this sounds familiar. But repentance, translated here, but repentance, prayer, and charity help the misfortune of the decree to pass. Or if you're like me, you grew up, I grew up with the Harlow Moxer. Everybody has their, their sort of childhood Moxer. I also had my childhood rabbi who was like the visiting rabbi who came to our community in Providence, Rhode Island, and he ran the second service. He was a humongous man, and he had this big, booming voice. And I always hear... At this moment, he would pause the prayer that was being uh, recited by the cantor, and he would say, but penitence, prayer, and good deeds may avert the severity of the decree. So however you translate this line in Hebrew, it's uchuva utfila utsedaka ma'avirin et roa hagzera. Again, but repentance, prayer, and charity help the misfortune of the decree to pass. Now, this is, in some ways, a, a moment that we're going to use in the prayer to unlock its meaning. And I want to start here just to raise a question and also to note the style of the prayer. The prayer is written quoting many other sources that preceded it. To be a master poet in ancient Israel uh, or ancient rabbinic culture was not to be creative in the way that we think of creative. That is to say, to create language out of nothing. But rather, it was to be creative with existing language that you already knew and to reformulate it, to take biblical verses, re 
uh, rewrite them, sort of re-scramble them in a clever way. So this line itself is actually taken straight from a midrash, a rabbinic legend. And if you look at the, if you ripped it off, it's on the other packet. If you didn't, it's on page one. Okay, the very first source on the top of page one. This is a midrash. This is a rabbinic statement. Rabbi Yehuda, son of Rabbi Shalom, said in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, three things cancel a harsh decree. And these are they, repentance, prayer, and charity. Tshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah. So these three things, tshuva, returning, repenting, tefillah, prayer, and tzedakah. Here tzedakah means, we used to learn that tzedakah meant charity. Then we learned that it was about justice. Now I'm telling you it means charity again. Okay? It's back to charity. Okay? So literally it's you repent, you pray, you give charity. That will, according to this Midrash, what will it do? Cancel the decree. Livatel, mivatlin, wipes out the decree. Okay? It's a formula. You do this, this, and this. You take away that. Okay? Now, how is our poem different from the Midrash? It's almost the same, but, it, but notice how it's different. Look again at the top of page 8. What's the difference? Okay, good. It has the three things, tshuva, tefillah, and tzedakah, repentance, prayer, and charity, still there. But instead of canceling, it says ma'avirin, et roa will ma'avir, l'ha'avir, to cause to pass. To, how is it translated here? Yeah, to, um, to help to pass. Okay? Now, as it was translated by the booming voice rabbi in my head, may avert the severity of the decree. It may avert, okay? So on the one hand, you have a midrash that says, you do this, it cancels your decree. And the, and the poem says, you do this, well, no guarantees, <laughs> right? Mavirin, it will cause it to pass. Now, it's just a little bit more ambiguous than cancel. So what I want to ask you to do is what we're going to do is we're just going to spend about, let's see, about seven minutes what we're going to do in seven minutes, I'm going to ask you to read the poem, okay? You get an opportunity right here to just dive in pre-Rosh Hashanah. During Rosh Hashanah, you, are, you have permission to space out during the poem because you'll have done the pre-work now, okay? You're going to spend seven minutes. You're going to read it out loud, okay? You're going to read it out loud to the person sitting next to you, and you're going to ask whatever question comes to mind or whatever feeling comes up for you when you read it. Okay? How are these words hitting you? But the other specific question I want to ask is, why did the poet change the word cancel, livatel, to lavir, to cause to pass? Can we see if we can just explore that? But even if you don't get to that, the main goal here for the next seven minutes is to read the poem, read it out loud. We're going to turn this room into a little bit of a buzz of a Beit Midrash. So we're going to hear you all, all reading this poem. Okay? Turn to the person next to you and start reading. We're bring it back together. Even this was, that was just a ruse so that I could call my wife and wish her good night. So thank you for indulging me in that. Actually, the, I, I, I'm a big believer in taking time to read the prayers that we're going to pray. You know, it's a sort of a paradox of Jewish prayer services that um, they take so long. 
and yet we say them so fast. <laughs> so to actually spend some time with each of the prayers and to, to consider them um, is, is an opportunity I think that um, you can do without me and, and I think that just the, the action of asking questions, of treating prayer texts as a text to be studied. We, we read the Torah all the time, we ask questions about it. We don't just say, oh, that's something we're gonna sort of race through without any reflection. I think the same way with the, with the Machs or with the Siddur, with the Jewish prayer book. What would it be like if we took the time to just read it and ask some questions about it? So I want to hear just a couple questions from you. What, what came up for you, either questions or reactions that you had? Um, just, even if you didn't, by the way, if you didn't finish the poem, I should say that the, the more advanced you get, the slower you read. That's, that's uh, an experience thing because there's just more things that start to um, you know, trouble you when, you when you read it. Um, so if you didn't finish it, good job. And I'll say that um, you'll have time on Rosh Hashanah <laughs> to read more of it. Um, but, but for the, the part that you did read, um, what questions came up or what, what experiences did you have? Yeah. In the first, in the first paragraph... Just speak, speak nice and loud, yeah. It's, sorry, the, the, the inconsistency on the U, on the capitalization of the U, is entirely typographical error. <laughs> Read nothing into it. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. So I'm hearing some resistance, let's call it, maybe even from a marketing standpoint, to um, the idea that I'm nothing, I'm dust, I'm a wither, withering flower of passing shadow, but God is everything. But you, but, but you are the living and eternal king. And that sort of contrast, that hierarchy, that intense hierarchy, is a little much and doesn't necessarily motivate me to live a better life if my life is worthless, right? If, if it doesn't count. Um, okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna sort of look into that. What does it mean? What's the stratagem that's being used here when I say my life is really, it amounts to nothing here, uh, in contrast to God? Other things that came up for you? Yeah, in the back, please. Yep. So which, which line, which, which part are you on? on, the, on page seven? And how many lines down? And you... Good, okay, what's the... Good, this is a great question. Um, ten, roughly 10, 11 lines down. For they will not be innocent when you judge them, capital U... And all who enter the world will pass before him like sheep. 
what's the reason that we go from second person to third person, right? Why are we addressing God and then all of a sudden we move to <clears throat> referring to God but not addressing God? Okay, good. And I should say, stylistic questions when it comes to the prayers often have theological import, okay? When I switch from second person to third person, what's going on there? Okay, a couple other questions. We're going to come back to answers, yeah. Uh, well, I noticed the different tones in each paragraph, but also the different words, the different tenses of uh, using them here. You, I guess you highlighted them in the English, but in the Hebrew, too, they're different words. But pass like a shadow, then pass on, and then pass. So that's obviously a big theme there. So Good. So I want, I want to focus on here for a second here. <clears throat> the word in Hebrew for pass is... Avar, okay? Avar is to pass. And, and um, what are some of the meanings of the word avar? This works a little bit in English as well. What are some of the connotations? When I say pass or avar, what other, I can ask it this way, what other words that sound like avar do you know in Hebrew? Or what other words that sound like pass do you know in English? Past. Okay, so one possibility is the past. You had mentioned the past, you know, connecting to our past. Avar is a tense, right? So in the past. What else is? Good, right? You, you actually succeed at something. You pass over something. Ma'avirin et ro'ag You cross over. Okay? Now, the past as time is also reflected, in, I think, in that metaphor in space. Um, we say on Pesach, in the Haggadah, Me'ever hanahar yashvu avotenu, right? Me'ever, avar, across, right? Jacob crosses this, uh, the, the passage uh, when he wrestles with the angel, ma'avar, the ma'avar yabok. He crosses that, okay? So what does avar mean here as well? It's to pass, but to pass over in a sort of spatial sense, okay? What's another sense of the word pass, yeah, or avar? To sit out. To take a pass. I'm to take a pass. Right. I'm, I'm sort of stepping outside. Okay, good. Have you ever heard of the word Avera? What's an Avera? Sin. A sin. What, how does it translate as sin? Use the word pass to get to sin. Yeah, okay, good. Passerby or transgress. Right? To cross over, to cross a boundary. Okay? So our ancestors crossed the boundary... Our ancestors lived on the other side of the Euphrates and crossed over to Canaan. And on high holidays, we talk about actions that we did that crossed a boundary. Any other associations with Avar that we have? To pass away, right? To pass on, right? Um, we, see, we see here how many, how, who shall live and who shall die? Right before that phrase, it says, how many will pass on? And how many will be created? Kamaya avoru. Okay? So the word pass, by the way, another word that you all know in English that actually is the word avar in Hebrew. What's the word? Hint. I just said it. Hebrew. What's Hebrew? Ivri. What's an Ivri? The people who pass. We are the people who pass. Now, to take your read of it, that passing can be, trans we are the people who transgress, right? Moses is constantly frustrated with us. Or we are the people who are always on the move, right? Our ancestors crossed a river. We are also crossing. We're on a journey. We are the so Yisrael is the struggling people, right, who struggles with, with God. And 
Ivri, Ivrim, are the passing people. They pass over something, or they pass on to something, or they cross something, or they move from the past. Now, what I want to argue is unlocking the meaning of this poem actually is wrapped up in the word avar. And the signal here is when the, the poet takes a midrash that says cancel, you know the midrash. Your way, it's like a, think of a midrash as a jingle. What's a jingle? Well, give me an example of a jingle. I'm like way out of pop culture. It's like, you know, I, what I would know, like NBC, right? Okay? So what if it was NB? Eh? <laughs> you didn't end on that right note, okay? You would notice the note difference because you know the right notes. NBC, if it doesn't sound like that, you notice it. So you're waiting for the midrash to come. You say, tshuva, tefillah, tzedakah, you know the next word is, mivatlin, cancel the decree. And instead the poet says, ma'avirin. Oh, I know to pay attention to the word ma'avirin. This word avar, to pass, is going to open up the poem. And that's why I bolded, I bolded the word pass in the poem, so to give us an opportunity to look at those instances. Do you want to add? Well, in the last paragraph it says, ba'avur. Yeah. Yeah. Ba'avur, which uses, you know, in Hebrew there are just, there are three-letter roots, um, and so Ba'avur, even though we would translate it as, as on account of, also calls to mind that word Avar, and if you count the number of times that Avar shows up in the poem, including Ba'avur, what do you get? Take a guess. Give me a good Jewish number. Seven. You get seven times Avar, okay? Now seven, is, in a literary style, is a complete unit, Okay? So what we have here is a unit, a poetic unit, built on the word avar. So we're not going to analyze the entire poem, um, but we are going to take a look at some of the aspects of avar as it's used in the poem and see what it calls to mind. So let's take a look at the first one. All right, so look at, um, the, which was already mentioned. So it's like, uh, and this is the, the, the shift from second person to third person. Now what I want to argue is, Part of the reason of the shift from second person to third person is they are quoting other texts. So when the other text is written in the third person, they are willing to shift the, the, the address from second person to third person to preserve the quote. Okay? So stylistically, it actually doesn't make a lot of sense. I should either be talking to you or about you in the same sentence. But if I'm going to refer you to another text, I want to hold on to what that text said. Okay, so what you see here is that the prayer is in dialogue with the antecedents to the prayer, the other text that it's drawing in. Okay, so let's just look at it here. Um, For they will not be innocent when you judge them, and all who enter the world will pass before him like sheep. I'm on page seven um, after, the five, uh, after the list of nine ands, the, for, the word four. Okay, so ten lines down. So that is quoting from a Mishnah, okay? In the Mishnah, it says that on Rosh Hashanah, everybody will pass. Now in this version, it says, Kivnei Maron. But in most texts of the Mishnah, it actually elides those words into one word, which is Kivnumaron. A numeron is a um, military formation. Now picture the scene, because what we're going to do is look at different visual images of what it means for God to act as judge on Rosh Hashanah. So what's the scene? You're a soldier, and you are passing before the company commander. 
What is that company commander looking for? Judging. What's that company commander looking for as a judge? Imperfection. Imperfection, right? If your boots are not shine, drop and give me 20, right? If you look any different from anybody else, then you stand out. The whole thing about this works with sheep too, I would argue. The whole thing about soldiers is you're meant to look the same. You dress in a uniform to look the same. Anybody who stands out is not favorably reviewed, right? This is a world in which we conform. In that world, God is, and what's the, um, do you want to pass before this company commander? How are you feeling before that commander? You're a little nervous and anxious. Maybe I didn't shine my shoes well enough, right? Okay, it's a, it's a, it's a sense of anxiety. I'm passing, and this is not, a, a company commander is not known as somebody, wow, why don't you try better next? Have you tried this shoe shine? It works for me, you know? No, we're talking about somebody who has very little mercy, okay? That is one image that is brought to us as we're talking about the, um, the beginning of the poem, the poem's first engagement with the word avar. By the way, who's being judged in this scene? Who's being judged? Everybody. The entire world. And by the way, not only the entire world, what was the previous line? The angels as well. So my question is, in the beginning of the poem, what's the scene? Where are we? Like, this, this year Rosh Hashanah is, is, what is it, it's early. Next year Rosh Hashanah is late. Are the angels saying to, to each other, you know, this year Rosh Hashanah is early, I have to take off from work. You know, which, which Rosh Hashanah is this? Is this, is this Rosh Hashanah early, late? <laughs> this one's on time. You know why? It is the day of judgment. It is the final and last Rosh Hashanah. It's the one in which you don't go to shul on this Rosh Hashanah. The entire world is being judged, okay? No matter where you are, no matter if you're a human or an angel, okay? So the, the opening of the poem is one in which there is this tremendous amount of anxiety. The angels themselves are trembling. Angels are known basically for not doing anything wrong. They should have nothing to worry about, and yet, they're trembling. And not just the Jews are being judged, but everybody's being judged, okay? This is how the poem opens. That's the first scene, and in that view of judging, God is seen as a company commander reviewing the military soldiers, not necessarily somebody that I'm going to experience mercy from. That's image number one. Now, we move quickly to another image. Let's look at the ne next image. As a shepherd searches for his flock... Passing his sheep under his staff, so too would you cause to pass and record and recount and review every living being. Okay? Now this, is, this moves fast because what we see here, in each section of a line, we're quoting another example of God as judge. Now who do you identify, in the previous image, the military formation, who do you identify with? Who are you meant to be in that image? The soldier. Now listen to this image that's, that's next. As a shepherd searches for his flock. This is a quote from, Isaac, from uh, Ezekiel. And we're going to see the quote here. If you, if you ripped off the poem, it's on your separate, separate packet. If you didn't, it's on page one. Okay? As a shepherd searches for his flock. That phrase is taken from a vision of Ezekiel. Now listen to God as judge in this selection. Okay? I'm on the bottom of page one. The word of Hashem came to me. O mortal, 
Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord Hashem, Ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been tending yourselves, is it not the flock, turn over the page, that shepherds ought to tend? You partake of the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not tend the flock. You've not sustained the weak, healed the sick, or bandaged the injured. You've not brought back the strayed or looked for the lost, but you have driven them with harsh rigor. Now, what's the scene here? Who are the shepherds and who are the sheep? Who are the shepherds? The leaders of Israel. Okay, and who are the sheep? Us. We are the sheep, and the shepherds that we have been allotted, our leaders, are completely corrupt. Right? They take for themselves. The image here is the shepherd, but the, 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 the prophet can't, can't hold himself back and actually breaks the image and says, you've not sustained the weak, healed the sick, or bandaged the injured. Right? That's not talking about sheep. That's talking about people. Right? So, who, so now, we have corrupt shepherds. We have, we are the sheep who've been abused. Now, you're an abused sheep. And God comes on the scene. And God says, the shepherds are going to be judged. Do you want judgment day to come? Yes. You are pulling for judgment day. You can't wait for judgment day. Right? Now let's see how this judgment day plays out. Skip down to the next box, verse 10. Thus says the Lord Hashem, in the middle of page 2. I am going to deal with the shepherds. I will demand a reckoning of, of them for my flock. And I will dismiss them from tending the flock. The shepherds shall not tend themselves anymore, for I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and it shall not be their prey. For thus says the Lord Hashem, here I am. I'm going to take thought for my flock, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when some in his flock have gotten separated, so I will seek out my flock. I will rescue them from all the places to which they were scattered on the day of cloud and gloom. Who's the new shepherd? God, right? This is Lahavdil, Donald Trump. You know, you're fired. You old shepherds are out of here. I'm the new shepherd. I'm taking over. And I'm going to actually do the job that you shepherds didn't get to do, which is to take care of the flock. Okay? Now, this judging God, I would argue, is very different from the one in which the company commander, without any mercy, is reviewing all the soldiers of the entire world. Here, it is God going after only the corrupt, only the leaders. And the victims are actually not being judged, they're being saved. Okay? So there's a shift here. Who is Judgment Day for? Is Judgment Day for the entire universe and the angels? Or is Judgment Day for corrupt evildoers who have somehow gotten into positions of power? That's the second image. Now we quickly move to the third image. Quickly move to the third image. In the poem, it's the next half a line. As a shepherd searches his flock, that's Ezekiel, passing his sheep under his staff. Now tell me, here we're going somewhere totally different. Turn over in the packet to page three, the section from Leviticus. Okay, this is the last law in the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Torah. You have to tithe. I'm just giving you this piece of information. I was once, <laughs> I was once at an event where we were teaching about Jewish charity, and someone came up to me afterwards, and they said, you know, the Mormons have an amazing concept. They tithe. 
said yes. They got that from somewhere else. Okay, but you're supposed to tithe, okay? And the way you tithe with animals is every tenth sheep is Kodesh Lashem, is holy for God. But let's see how this actually works. So I'm in um, uh, number four on page three, Leviticus 27. All tithes of the herd or flock, of all that passes under the shepherd's staff, kol asher ya'avor tachat ha'shevet, ma'avir tachat shivtom, every tenth one shall be holy to Hashem. He must not look out for good as against bad. Lo yivaker bein tov lara or make substitution for it, okay? Here's the way it works. How do you know which of your sheep is meant to be for God? You line them up and they walk and you count them off. One, two, three. The mission describes on the 10th one, you put a red stripe on it. They pass through a narrow opening. How do you know which one is number 10? It's random. Lo yivaker bein tov lara. You may not Choose, you may not distinguish. Lo yivaker, like boker. Boker is the time of day, the morning, when you can distinguish. Lo yivaker, you may not distinguish between good and bad. It's random. The tenth one is random. What might, what might you be tempted to do, by the way, if it wasn't random? Yeah, yeah. either you want to give the worst sheep, because hey, let's be honest, I'd rather keep the nine best sheep for myself, or maybe you want to give the best sheep over to God, because... After all, you want God to, I don't know, experience, uh, you want to give that gratitude, that bounty back to God. But here the Leviticus is telling you it's not good, it's not bad, it's random. That's a different kind of distinction that we may not associate with God as judge on high reading the book of good and evil and seeing where you fall, but this is an image that the poet uses here to say sometimes it's totally random. Sometimes it's just random. Who gets selected? And in fact, the text goes on and says, if you do make substitution for it, if you do try to say, oh yeah, I'll take, take, take sheep number eight. That one's a little weak, you know, weak need. Then it and its substitute shall be both holy. Right? What's the punishment for trying to game the system? You get a tax of 20% instead of 10%. That one and the 10th one both, both go to God. You can't game the system. Sometimes it's just random. Okay, so we have three images so far. We have God reviewing the soldiers, <coughs> of who everybody stands in, all humans and angels, on the final judgment day. We have God passing judgment on the leaders who are corrupt, and we are the ones who can't wait for those leaders to be fired. And now we have an image of God completely randomly passing the sheep under the staff. That's part of what it also means to live another year. Okay? Now, at this point in the poem, you get a sense that there is a more complex view of God than simply, um, you know, the people who did good get good and the people who did bad get bad. We're going to see just briefly how some of this plays out and also your image of, well, I'm no, look who thinks he's, he's nobody. You know the joke, right? But yeah. 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 Correct. In that one, it's not random. That's the line before. I think this is, this is what, the poet, I think what the poet is trying to do is say to you, I'm going to give you a bunch of images here. By the way, poets don't need to be rational. 
They can be sort of suggestive. I'm going to use the word avar, and I'm going to use that as my key to tell you that, you know what? Judgment is complex. It doesn't always work out in the way that one systematic theology of good and evil would always have you believe. Now, I think part of the way this plays out, just look at the last, uh, <coughs> look at the next pass. Now I'm on the bottom, page seven, in the famous part, second paragraph. On Rosh Hashanah, they will be written down, <coughs> excuse me, and on Yom Kippur, they will be seen. We saw this before. Kama Yavorun, how many will pass on, and how many will be created? Who will live and who will die? Who by their end and who not at their end? Who by fire, who by water? Now what's the problem here? There's a structural problem with one of the phrases. How many will pass on and how many will be created? What's the problem in the structure with that phrase? Not the theology, but just the structure. What would you have expected it to say? Who will be created and, who will, and how many will pass on? Why do you think that? Why do you expect that? You're right. That's the normal order of the rest of the, op of the opposing parts, right? These are the... the, the Positive one comes first. So now, how many of them will pass on, die, and how many of them will be created? Now listen to this. Even the word avar, which means to pass on, has another meaning when it comes to life and death. Have you ever heard of the word ubar? What's an ubar? An embryo, a fetus, right? We are in... <coughs> Um, the technical term, we're about to start a year that has 13 months. It's called a shanam mi'uberet, an impregnated year, an extra month, okay? So the word avar can mean to pass on, but pass on from where to where? Where does a ubar pass on from? From the womb into the world. So one way of reading this line is, kama yabrun, how many will conceive? Kama yibareun. How many will make it to term and be born? Mi Who will survive the first few days or the first month of life? The rabbis didn't consider a baby viable until it passed 30 days. This is a different world of infant mortality. And mi How many will die? So what I'm saying here is, even in the word avar, you have both the end of life and the beginning of life. It's complex. Where are we passing on to? Are we only passing on to death? Or are we being reborn? Is there some birth that we're also looking forward to? Right? All wrapped up in the word avar. Now, we'll skip the next one, but did you get the idea of where this is going? We'll just do one last one. Passing shadow. This gets to the joke is, you know, look who thinks he's nothing. The, the gut. You know, you, you know the joke. Someone tell the joke. No? The cantor, the rabbi, yeah? No, tell the joke. <laughs> the, you know, the cant, the, on high holidays, the rabbi makes a big plea. He says, Lord, I'm nothing, I'm worthless. Please save me. Falls down on the ground. The cantor says, Lord, I'm worthless, I'm nothing. Falls down on the ground. The president gets up and says, Lord, I'm worthless, I'm nothing. Falls down on the ground. The rabbi says to the cantor, look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> so look who thinks he's nothing is part of, I think, what's going on here with this, all these images of a person is nothing. Okay, so now I'm on page eight. 
A person's, I'm in the middle of the paragraph on top of page 8. A person's origin is dust and his end is dust. Adam yisodo me'afar v'sofolafar. What does Adam mean, literally? Person. What does it mean literally, though? Earth, right? Adam, from the word Adama, right? A person literally is dust. They are dirt. I am dirt, okay? And then, um, at their peril gathering, food like shattered pottery, withered grass, faded blossom, like a passing shadow, like a vanishing cloud, etc. Passing shadow. Ketzel over. Now, Ketzel over, passing shadow, also is a quote. This time it's a quote from Psalms. So let's look. Turn with me for a second. Page five. We're coming to the end here. Sorry, page four. Top of page four. Psalm 144. A person is like a breath. Adam la hevel dama. Hevel. You know who Hevel was? Abel. Here's a hint. If you're naming a child, don't name them vapor. <laughs> don't name them breath. Doesn't end well for Abel, right? He's killed by his brother Cain, okay? Adam la hevel dama. A person is like a breath, like vapor. His days are like a passing shadow. Yamav ketzel over. Now, listen to how the psalmist goes on. O Lord, bend your sky and come down. Touch the mountains and they will, they will smoke. Make lightning flash and scatter them. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach your hand down from on high. Rescue me. Save me from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners. Now on the one hand, in verse 4, in the first verse in the selection here, what's the self-worth of such a person who says, a person's like breath, his days are like past. I'm, I'm nothing. I'm really, I'm nobody. If God, if you could just bend the rules of nature, come in and shoot some arrows at my enemy and rescue me, that would be great. But I'm nothing. You get me? I'm, I'm really, I'm worthless, okay? So I think what, what we see here is, yes, I'm worthless, but I'm actually not worthless. I'm actually worthy of being saved, right? It's the sense of, if you know the rest of what it's referring to, you're not going to say it out loud, in this moment on Rosh Hashanah, but you know it's more than just, I'm nothing. I'm nothing, but I'm also something. I'm someone worth being saved. I'm someone that God, you should bend the world, the natural world, and intervene just to save me. Now, the, the, I think what, what, yeah, please. I don't understand the, at, and at their peril gathers loose. The rest of it seems to fit perfectly if you don't have that line in there. What does that, what does that mean? Um, at their peril, right, probably better translated meaning the entirety of his soul is gathering bread. All you amount to is sort of like a fighter for food. You know, that's... But then it says like shattered pottery. Yeah, I would say put that in the category of you're fragile and there's not a lot of meaning that you bring into the world. You're just gathering some food. That's what you're here for. Right? Taking up, up a little bit of space, you know, gr growing some wheat and eating it just to survive. But again, the psalmist is saying that differently. The psalmist is saying, save me, Lord, rescue me, step into nature, and change everything for me. It's not us, it's me, right? My self-worth just went up a lot, okay? Now, 
I think what we see at the end of this poem is some sense that my self-worth, how I'm being judged, what role God plays in judgment is complex and depends on your moment, your year, your position. Are you the one, are you that shepherd who should be, you know, routed and fired? Are you the sheep who's been chased around? Are you the one who experienced some randomness, right? It was not good or bad, it was just random. It hit me. Are you the one who's feeling, actually like feeling bad about yourself, but nevertheless able to say, I'm worthy of being saved? Are you passing on to death? Are you passing on to life? Are you a fetus about to be born? All of those things are wrapped, all those images are wrapped up in this poem. So I think the one image I want to leave you with, maybe we'll get a little musical interlude to close, um, is one last image about what it means to pass before. Okay? So stay with me on page four. Page four, this is in the first chapter of, of Mishnah Yoma, which uh, describes the way in which the high priest on Yom Kippur um, should uh, get ready for the big day of sacrifice. Now, the problem was the high priest was an inherited position. It wasn't always the wisest guy who ended up being the high priest. So it turns out that they had to train him. So take a look at this very short Mishnah, number seven. This we're going to end. They sent him the high priest. That is to say, the high, they sent the high priest elders from the elders of the court. The elders knew what to do, and they were instructing the high priest. On the eve of Yom Kippur, in the morning, Erev Yom Kippur, they would stand the high priest in the eastern gate and cause to pass, umavirin lefanav, cause to pass before him, cows, goats, and sheep, so that he would recognize them and be accustomed to the service. He's like me. He's a city kid. He has no idea. What is a sheep? I have no idea. What's the difference between a sheep and a goat? I don't know. They have to have the elders go there and say to him, no, 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 this is a sheep. That's a goat. Don't screw it up. You've got to send the goat that way and the sheep this way, okay? But just look at the words again. parim elim ukvasim makir. What's the purpose of passing before? So that you can recognize them. Part of what it means to pass before God on Rosh Hashanah is not only about judgment, it's about recognition. It's about a reacquaintance. I want to use the image of the community that was said before. It's I see you again. I'm seen by you again. I pass before you. I am recognized. So part of what it means to pass is not only to pass in judgment, but to pass into relationship. And I think that's another image that we might be able to take with us into Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So with this, I want to sort of at least complicate the images that are in this poem. And by using the word avar, our namesake, Ivri, Hebrew, to unlock some of the images that we might, and some of the emotions that we might take with us into high holidays. Thank you. We can't study, we can't study this poem without hearing it recited. So we're going to close a little musical interlude.
Tea. 